Hi everybody, welcome to Read, Watch, Play. I'm James. I'm Clea. I'm Corinne. And I'm Justin. And on this episode, we're talking about Blade Runner by Ridley Scott, because this is something where we talk about movies and... And all James just, gets really excited about director's names. I, it, everything just comes back to Blade Runner. I mean, Ridley Scott <laughs> is really fun to say, let's be yeah. honest. I Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's a mix of it's fun to say and just the inevitability, right? Like, mm-hmm. from the day this began, we all knew that this is where we were headed. Right. It's like a conversation on the internet and Hitler. Yep. It's just... You talk about movies, you gotta talk about Blade Runner. This I, is the fifth fucking time I've seen this movie. Sixth. Second for me. Oh, God, I lost count so long ago. <sighs> I never kept track. <laughs> like, yeah. I, like, I've watched it a bunch, right? It's a good movie. Like, I remember watching it with my dad as a kid and stuff yeah. like that. But I very weirdly only saw it uh, a couple years ago because a friend of mine was just like, you are always the one who has seen all the movies and picks out movies for us to watch. Let me flip the tables for once. And so we watched Blade Runner because I just had never seen it. Is it because that was the DVD that landed face up after she flipped her DVD table? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. We'll go with that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, I feel like this is exciting. It feels like a milestone. Yeah. Again, just as a thing that discusses film, this just is going to happen eventually. Yeah. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're getting it out of the system. You know. Also, Blade Runner did come up very briefly in our discussion of Life is Strange because they watched Blade Runner at one point. They do. Yeah, that's true. So I you know, forgot about Callbacks. it. Callbacks. Yeah. Oh, that both. One. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it depends, right? Like on on where you are. Uh, I'm the ghost of podcast present, and James is the ghost of podcast past. And I guess I'm the future. What's Justin then? Obviously, Justin uh, Scrooge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately forgot the character's name. So I wanted to you. say Ichabod Crane, so <laughs> crossover episode. Yeah, this is I'm Ichabod really... Crane. You're the ghost of podcast present and the headless horseman. <laughs> I'm James. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, um, what did everyone think of Blade Runner? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I've seen it so many times that at this point, it's like, when I watch it, I'm kind of just like, yeah, I, I don't know if I if I feel things anymore because it's it's kind of like breathing. Yeah, I feel like... <laughs> I feel, I feel like I think and feel less about this movie every time I watch it. That makes sense. Which, yeah, I guess it is just kind of natural. I've seen it enough times. Not, like, we watched it last night. And it was just like, it was like when I put on a, a TV show that I don't really care about for background noise while I'm doing something else. Except I have to focus on the TV show that is the background noise. Yeah. Being that this was my second time watching it, and that I watched it for the first time, like, just a few years ago so i don't have like either a a long history with it or b nostalgia i'm gonna say i like it all right but that's about it so that's that's me yeah. controversial opinion yeah i mean i i liked it a lot i've always really liked it a lot i feel like this for me was one of those movies that i remember like i watched when i was like pretty young and had nostalgia for etc but also one of those things where like then i got older and realized why it was not just like a fun movie but like oh yeah no there's like other stuff going on here and like oh that's like a really cool shot and i'd never really thought about what a cool shot meant when i was you know 12 you know and stuff like that and so Ed, for me this was one of those movies that i just kind of like grew with in like the way that i watched movies it was always really nice that it was one that i could like go back to and just be like oh i liked this and i'm going back and watching a bunch of movies that i remember liking and they're not holding up super great 
And then, like, I went back and watched it. I was like, oh, holy shit, this is really cool. And so, yeah, I feel like I always kind of have that, which makes me, obviously, extremely biased. I feel like it was probably, if not my first, and one of my first experiences with, like, a darker sci-fi. Because I definitely watched it when I was, like, fairly young. Um, and I remember really, really liking it that first time I watched it because it was a little bit... I think I watched it with, my like, my father... Um, and I liked the darker elements, both like visually, like literally it's like a dark film cause it's, you know, it's sci-fi noir. Um, and then also just thematically, it was a little bit, it wasn't like, you know, this upbeat, like, cause I, I was very into Star Wars as a kid and that was like the thing that got, that was one of the things that got me into like sci-fi in general, but that's much more, you know, family, fun, yeah. like, you know, more cheerful you know i mean star wars is a complicated thing on its own but blade runner is kind of i feel like objectively darker than star wars star wars is also like less hard sci-fi more space fantasy right exactly so it's got you know i feel like sci-fi in general seems to have harder darker yeah themes in general i would argue though that's largely due to things like blade runner sure and i mean philip k dick i mean i this is something i for for some context i imagine most listeners know this but uh i mean blade runner based on the philip k dick novel do androids dream of electric sheep um something that yeah which is way less read than blade runner is watched like i i, I enjoy the novel but i'm also not going to sit here and argue that oh well you know the book was better and it came first and blah. i was like no blade runner is a, a better movie than androids is a book um still read philip kiddick oh god please go read yes. philip kiddick yes, so good absolutely. um so many good things anyway uh but we're talking about blade runner i i don't know i i guess i'm not necessarily well versed quite enough in like the strict history of of science fiction to say but would would i be wrong in saying that films like blade runner and novels like a lot of what dick wrote were a big part in that shift over to some of those harder darker themes i mean you go back beyond that and you get sci-fi that's very like bright and optimistic and yeah it's even if it's not space fantasy it's a lot of it's certainly space adventure and you know kind of you're talking about flash gordon and yeah exactly uh, yeah those kinds of things um yeah i mean am am i wrong in that that basic understanding even if not necessarily with the specifics but that these are sort of around that time frame where that shift was occurring no i mean i think i think you're pretty on the nose with that yeah i will say god i don't know why this is blade runner is one of those films that you generally expect everyone who's like at all into the genre to be like you know to have seen it probably multiple times and also Mm -hmm. to you know say they enjoy it but it's also one of those things that like Sometimes someone will say, like, on their OK Keep Your Profile, like, oh, yeah, I'm, like, really into Blade Runner as if that's, like, something unique. Oh, yeah. And, as, like, a, some... as opposed to being practically a red flag. Yeah. Oh, just, like, because, like, if, if someone talks about their love for Blade Runner, like, it is completely unique in the world and, like, nobody else is going to have said that exact same thing, it's, you know. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. I agree. We made jokes about this uh, with some of the early episodes. It feels a lot like talking about ludonarrative dissonance. <laughs> It's one of those things where once you, you know, you go a little bit further, you realize that, yeah, that's, that's the first thing most people learn. And it's an important thing, just like Blade Runner is an important film. But, uh, when that's your big go-to, uh, usually a red flag. Yep. Yeah. yeah. 
So everyone here who thinks that you are really special for being super into Blade Runner, sorry about that. Uh, watch more sci-fi, though. It gets really good. <laughs> I'd like to point out that I think I'm very special for being not bad into Blade Runner. Yeah. Oh, that, that's the second phase. Yeah. <laughs> you have passed that one, too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, so what do we want to say about this? I mean, obviously, we're, we're still going to stick to the no spoilers, then spoilers. We're not going to... We're joking about it, but we're not assuming that everyone listening to this has seen Blade Runner. Right. Um, spoilers aside, is there anything that really jumped out at anyone that they want to want to get into before we go whole hog? The logic of this movie, like, especially after watching it, like how many millions of gajillion times I've seen it, doesn't always hold up super well. Just like with the replicants, right, and like yeah. their lifespans, and when you really like think about, like, wow, these replicants look very detailed and seem to be like you know capable of a lot of things and basically are human except for like they live for what like four years four years years, yeah and that is a very specific four years apparently (laughs) yeah it's i don't know it's 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 don't think about it too much i guess is my advice yeah i will say it was weird to to rewatch this film in 2016 which is when all of the replicants were made. Yeah. And, you know, now we're only three years removed from when the book is happening or when the movie is happening. Yeah. And, like, it's not, like, it doesn't matter, but it was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> we were making some jokes about it, uh, about it last night. Opening scene was like, I was like, oh, hmm. Tall, dark cityscape, huge bellows of carbon emissions. Yep, that's definitely this future. Yep. And then we got to the like the huge like pyramid buildings, and I was like, oh look, <laughs> look, the government agency has been relocated inside one of like one of Trump's buildings. Yeah. And yeah, we just I mean, got a laugh I, uh, out of that, and yeah. I was like, yep, that's definitely this future. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is always weird when when sci-fi picks a date, like as as you like get closer and closer to that. Yep. I mean, it's kind of the one of those kind of weird benefits to like the Mega Man, like, oh, 20XX solution. But even then, 20XX, we're pretty rapidly coming up on, right? Yep. We're, there's only we're, running, like, we're running out of numbers to fill in those Xs with. Yeah, there's only like another 80 years or so of, of stuff we could put in there before, you know, Mega Man doesn't happen. And I will be very let down. <laughs> <laughs> like with the Back to the Future uh, hoverboard situation. Or yeah, like, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that look at where that's left us. You feel like look at like two thousand one Space Odyssey, right? Right. It's yeah. like where are my obelisks? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, always weird when sci-fi picks a date. Yeah, because the future. I think it was like Neil Gaiman's introduction to uh, Alfred Fester's "The Stars My Destination," where he says nothing is like more dated than the future. Yeah. <laughs> Which is totally, totally. We talked about that with Raygun Gothic also. Yeah. It's just it, it, and it was something with Altered Carbon that I felt like. You know, we'll talk about them more in the topic episode, but like that for a book that came out in 2002, I want to say, like the world building wasn't super dated. Uh, and Blade Runner, some things definitely feel very dated, mm-hmm. but other things like the general atmosphere and and some things feel better, like they could be around the corner still. Yeah, it feels appropriately futuristic in a lot of ways. And is it? Okay. There was a thing. Anthony Bourdain was going to open like a food market that was like inspired by the Blade Runner food yeah. area. Oh my god! You know I'm how for that. happy that, that would make me. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, Blade Runner is is heralded as sort of like a like a the iconic postmodern film ever. Um. The the idea of this sort of like blending of of both like 
explicitly textual things and explicitly like image things, but also sort of the, the general pastiche that is like what the world of Blade Runner is, right? So we get um, this almost like neo-noir where we're still getting the typical noir aspects with um, with Deckard's uh, monologue. And just Deckard, largely. Yeah. Hey. And just he, I mean, he's literally like a Raymond Chandler, you know, PI-style character. He Does he have one guy throughout all of his books? It's one character, right? Raymond Chandler? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly Philip Marlowe and then yeah. I think a few other... Th- but that's what he's known for. Yeah. yeah. You could basically pull Marlowe out of the, the 70s and 80s and drop him into the 2019 of Blade Runner. And he's like Deckard is basically him. Yeah. And I think um, you can say that for a lot of modern noir, or, you know, sci-fi or modern noir. It's like, yeah. let's take Philip Marlowe and put him in X situation. Yeah. Marlowe's basically Marlo an archetype. had gills yeah. and solved fish crimes. Oh, man. I'd watch that. Yeah. Right. We got to start working on this novel now. Um, but you, it's just having it take place in this, this world. It's, it's almost this weird sort of neo-noir, right? Where it's taking these like fifties, sixties and seventies ideas of what noir really is. And instead of changing or updating that in any way, just dropping it into a completely different time period. Um, and then you have this, this thing that I feel like sci-fi doesn't actually do that often that should be done more, which is this like ultimate blending of culture. Right. Uh, like you were talking about the, the food area and, and stuff that we see sort of throughout, throughout Blade Runner. And there's very much sort of this Asian influence over most of the, the like food stands that exist in the place that, that Deckard prefers to go. Um, but it, it lends the Los Angeles of, Blade Runner's world, this like futuristic blending of of culture in a way that obviously that hasn't happened in the world, but is something that people who are projecting futures in the the seventies and eighties like to do, which is that like we would ultimately end up having this global culture that would be a, a pastiche of like Western, ide- like American Western ideals and and European Western ideals, and then of like Asian ideals and it's always interesting to to see something like that actually play out because as much as it feels like a natural sci-fi idea, I feel like it also doesn't happen that much. And arguably it's happening some, right? I mean, like you compare say the difference between just sort of like the, the kinds of diversity that you might see between like across neighborhoods in a city in yeah. like the seventies and eighties versus today. Like, no, it's not uh, what you know, what you see in sci-fi, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, we do a lot of cultural exporting here in america and we do a pretty fair amount of cultural importing generally in different areas but i mean you know there's the argument like the idea that like you know like american food is largely composed of hamburgers and then fast and unhealthy versions of other cultures foods yeah um it's what we do best yeah but you know so some stuff like that but yeah no like it's certainly not at the point at which yeah you see it in sci-fi but one of the interesting effects that like Blade Runner has had probably on my on my life and also the life of like I have this conversation with like various friends and family members just occasionally. Um, it's like if you're passing a certain building and it looks a little bit weird, like it's a little bit dark or it's like weirdly shaped, you're like, Oh yeah, it looks like something from Blade Runner. Oh yeah. And like or you like you see, you know, 
I, I had this conversation with my mom in Singapore. Like there was a part of Singapore and at night, everything was like very lit up and like from a certain angle, it looked like it could be something from like Blade Runner. And so we always mentioned like, Oh yeah, that looks like something from Blade Runner. Like that's just like a reference point now for a lot of people of like, Oh, this thing looks kind of like futuristic and a little bit gritty and like kind of sci-fi. It's like, Oh yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah. Oh yeah. This person's doing a lot of completely unnecessary backflips. Blade Blade Runner. Runner. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I go to a circus, it's like, oh man, this is some Blade Runner shit right here. See through raincoat, so Blade Runner. Blade Runner. <laughs> oh man. When I occasionally wear just my Xeno Warrior Princess like <laughs> chest piece, Blade Runner. As one does. Yeah. Sure. We were. I'm gonna just say this now. It's I don't really think it's spoiling anything because I'll be super vague. But like when we were watching uh, that scene. Um, last night i was just like oh god i feel so bad for the stunt actors who had to do all of that because one of the specific things that is so bad for female stunt actors is that they they they're usually wearing clothing that can't conceal padding Mm. so female stunt actors have a harder time than males because they just can't use padding the same way that men in suits who are largely the ones in action scenes you know and just the outfit of that woman just boots Xena Warrior Princess chest piece, not the leather part, just the metal chest piece part, and a see-through raincoat doing all of those things that were occurring. God, that just looks so painful. I felt so bad for her. It almost seems like impractical to the extent that I have to wonder if the stunt actress is like, no, I want the best thing ever for my resume. I will never be without work if I can pull this off. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't think it happened. But... It's the only reason I can conceivably think of otherwise. Yeah, it seems like it's just making it way harder for no reason. I don't know. Can't get more work if you can't get up after your stunt. So that's all I'm saying. Anyway. Yeah, but going back to your uh, point, Cleo, about like how like quickly you like jump to just like, oh, this is a thing that kind of fits arguably into this kind of like broader mold. And you're just like, oh, yep, Blade Runner. I, I feel like some of that has to do with it being early in it. But some of it is just that like, God, this movie's gorgeous. Yeah. Like, it's... Even if there were, like, a very similar shot in, like, other movies before... I guess, no, a similar shot wouldn't do it because... Or, like, it's, like, a similar idea. Just... It seems like, statistically speaking, it's way more likely that Blade Runner shot it better. It's, like, every single camera angle. I feel like you could just, like, take and use as a still for some sort of promotional poster, and it would just be gorgeous. Yeah. It's a very good-looking film. Um, The color palette is amazing. (laughs) uh also i really like the score for it like it's fairly subtle at times like it's not something like oh i'm gonna have the you know theme from blade runner stuck in my head for days but it's like in the it works for each scene it's like and again like the edit it's like the movie as a whole is very good like the editing the pacing in general like the whole everything put together works together well um Again, like, looking back at it now, having seen it a million times, story not, like, necessarily super unique, has definitely moments that stay with you, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a whole, it's not like you're going to look at it and be like, wow, like, never has a story since been told that incredibly. Yeah. I wonder to what extent, and this is a, another point where it's just me not, not knowing the answer, um, whether some of that ends up being similar to what we talked about with Replay where we were talking about like well you know since then we've seen a bunch of stuff that has done stories very similar to this uh, i wonder especially if you go back to the date when uh dick wrote uh androids 
how relatively early that was in some ideas about uh, this kind of story and whether this ended up being kind of a seminal one. Uh, again, I strictly do not know the answer to that. I know that a lot of Philip K. Dick stuff uh, has been blatantly like ripped off and moved around in other things, but I also know that there's plenty of things that were, you know, existed before him. So I'm I'm really curious about where that stands. Certainly for the source material, for some of the story and the telling, because I agree that this is this is one of those things where I feel like other people have have absolutely done the Blade Runner story. It's interesting because like with Philip K. Dick, I always kind of like assume because a lot of times it's it's true that oh this is like the first instance of like such and such sci-fi trope almost always yeah because he was just he was prolific for one thing he was also very high yeah (laughs) all the time all the time (laughs) um i mean you get into some of this stuff like dangerously so like yeah big like seeing giants in the sky To the point when you when you're reading a lot of Philip K. Dick, you start to like feel a little weird, like you might yeah. be high. Yeah, I'm fairly convinced that a Scanner Darkly is an autobiography. Yeah, I think pretty much. <laughs> I think it's pretty much been admitted. Yeah. Anyway, before we just get on, <laughs> on the Philip K. Dick, I, I want to have this conversation some other time. But yeah, no, like I, I'm really curious about that and whether um, some of the stuff that Blade Runner ends up kind of accidentally having to deal with are. Just kind of like a lot of copycats. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, the story is interesting, was around for a while, and because it's just kind of this really well-done movie. And I was like, ah, let's just do it like that. Yeah. I feel like there was a Korean movie. I, I don't know this was a long time ago, but it was like some Korean movie that was randomly on Netflix, like, years and years ago. And I was watching it, and I was like, why does this seem so familiar? I was, it was basically like shot for shot Blade Runner. Or like, you know, like, this, the story was pretty much identical uh and to the but like to the point where i would be like oh this is clearly supposed to be a remake but then it obviously like wasn't allowed yeah. to be a remake it wasn't called like korean blade runner no. it was korean yeah blade runner. knife jogger knife jogger yeah. <laughs> scimitar swimmer i would watch that that would be the one with Philip Marlowe with gills. Yeah, there we go. We got it. <laughs> got your name. But, so, yeah, I mean, I would say, broadly speaking, I mean, there's just, like, a lot of nice things you can say about the movie. Yeah. Um, we'll say, again, like I said, for Altered Carbon, brings in some of the, like, kind of, like, less fortunate tropes from noir. Yes, it does. For sure. <laughs> yeah. But, in, in I guess, in a place where, like, Ultra Carbon just has way, way, way less excuse to do it than Blade Runner does as just being a product of its time. Yeah, Ultra Carbon also just, like, does it a lot more. For sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, good. there's all of, like, two and a half female characters in Blade Runner. Yeah. So there's just more in- more ability, more places where it can fail in Altered Carbon. Yeah. I would argue this this is potentially another potentially rather an example of um, something that we did touch on a little bit in the Altered Carbon episode, where I, I think that Blade Runner's highs uh, do a bit more to make it still feel like overall like a worthy cultural object, in spite of its lows. Again, don't erase them, but make the total package at least have things worth going back to. Yeah, uh, for sure. All right, so I think that we are dancing around spoilers. 
Blade Runner is a hard thing to talk about without getting pretty direct. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, particularly because I want to have the conversation that I feel like is the the go to like conversation, goofy yeah. conversation about Blade Runner. Yeah, you get past the why it's like a well made movie, and then you get into the other one. We can't have that till after the spoiler break, so we're gonna call that here. So. With this being our spoiler break, we are going to talk a little bit about our next series. That is going to be, I'm going to give this to Corinne again. Yeah, it's going to be Girls with Gifts Gathered by the Government. Damn straight. And for that, we are going to be reading Firestarter by Stephen King. We are going to be watching Stranger Things. And we are going to be playing Beyond Two Souls. Or Or Ellen Page the Game. Yeah. By the fourth episode of this, we are going to have this down. This is going to be great. Uh, (laughs) As we pointed out last episode, do keep in mind, Stranger Things, it is the entire series, not like the first episode or half of it or anything like that. All all eight episodes. Well, the first season, which is yeah. all that exists at this time. That's true. If you're coming back listening to this after like season two has come out, you are in for a lot of disappointment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the entire first season. So definitely start getting ready for that. This is kind of the first time we've done something that long, kind of touching back on our, our Hunger Games roots. It's our first... Uh tv series isn't it yeah her first tv anything yeah. yeah yeah in place of a movie yeah so, <laughs> so we haven't done a tv movie that's true made for tv direct to video that would be great <laughs> hey going postal's awesome but yeah so definitely keep that in mind if you are if you are at least watching along uh probably one you'll want to start a little bit sooner than than i know i i tend to uh and with that we're going to be jumping into a quick summary provided by uh oh by me yeah but you go me yep be back soon the film opens with a white scroll over a black screen the text explains the tyrell corporation has created a new robotic life form that is nearly indistinguishable from humans known as a replicant recent replicants are stronger faster and at least as intelligent as human beings these replicants were generally used as slaves for dangerous off-world work but after a revolt they were made totally illegal on earth Blade Runner units were established to hunt down and kill any found hiding on the planet. This process, the scroll concludes, is called retiring. In Los Angeles, November 2019, we see a huge illuminated sprawl dominated by two enormous pyramid-shaped buildings. An employee of the Tyrell Corporation interviews a man named Leon. Leon is made visibly uncomfortable and, when asked about his mother, pulls a gun and shoots at the interviewer. The scene shifts to a busy outdoor marketplace. Deckard sits outside in the rain. He steps up to a noodle bar and is approached by two cops who put him under arrest, identifying him as a Blade Runner. Deckard accompanies these cops to a police station, where the chief tells him about a group of four replicants who jumped ship to Earth from somewhere off-world. Deckard insists that he's done working for the police, but the chief pressures him into taking the job. Together, Deckard and the Chief review the footage of the Tyrell employee interviewing Leon. The interview is revealed to be a Voight-Kampf test, used to identify replicants. The Chief identifies Leon as one of the missing replicants, and shows Deckard video of the other three. The Chief explains that, while replicants don't inherently possess human-like emotions, the engineers behind the latest models believe that they could develop their own emotional responses given enough time. To prevent this, all modern replicants have a strict four-year lifespan. Deckard travels to the Tyrell Corporation's headquarters, where he meets a woman named Rachel, who doesn't seem to think very highly of his profession. Deckard and Rachel are joined by Dr. Eldon Tyrell, who wants to see a demonstration of the Voight-Kampf test, asking Deckard to try it on Rachel so that he can see a negative result. Deckard administers the test, and, when it is over, 
Dr. Tyrell asks Rachel to leave the room so that Deckard can reveal the results. Deckard surmises that Rachel is a replicant, but she doesn't know it. Dr. Tyrell confirms Deckard's findings, explaining that the Tyrell Corporation has started creating replicants with false memories, helping them develop a controlled set of desired emotions. Next, Deckard and another cop investigate the hotel where Leon was staying. He finds a fish scale in the bathtub and a stack of photos in one of the drawers. As they search, the other cop leaves little matchstick figures in one of the rooms. As Deckard is searching the room, Leon approaches the apartment, but leaves when he notices the police presence. He meets Roy, another of the escaped replicants, and the two leave before the cops notice them. The two replicants visit an old man in a frigid lab. The man reveals that he does genetic design, making eyes for replicants. Roy asks about the structure of his own brain, but the man can't answer, saying that he only designs eyes. For information about their brains, they'll need to see Dr. Tyrell himself. The man tells them about another man named J.F. Sebastian, who he says can get them a meeting with Tyrell. Meanwhile, Deckard heads home and is surprised to find Rachel in his building's elevator. He invites her into his apartment. She shows Deckard a picture of her mother, using it as evidence that she can't be a replicant because of her childhood memories. Deckard counters by describing some of her most private memories back to her, things that she'd never shared with anybody. Deckard explains that the memories are only implants, copies from Tyrell's niece, which makes Rachel visibly upset. Deckard tries to apologize and send her home, but she won't leave, so he brings her a drink instead. While he's getting a glass, Rachel leaves the apartment, leaving one of her photos behind. Outside, a young woman wanders the streets, alone. She finds a pile of trash and covers herself in it. A man approaches and she tries to run, pushing him out of the way but crashing into a parked car. The man calls her back over and introduces himself as J.F. Sebastian. He offers her a place to stay and something to eat and invites her up to his apartment. She accepts the offer and says that her name is Pris. Sebastian explains that he's a genetic designer and that he likes to build toys to keep himself company. In the morning, Deckard, who's been up all night going through the photos he found in Leon's apartment, uses a machine to examine the details of one of the pictures, finding an image of a woman in Leon's bathtub where Deckard found the bit of scale. Deckard takes the scale to a marketplace to have it examined, where a woman identifies it as snakeskin, not fish scale, and finds a serial number that leads Deckard to the manufacturer. Deckard then tracks the buyer to Chinatown, where he finds him in a crowded club. At the club, he sees a woman do an act with a snake, and goes to the back to wait for her. When the woman finishes her act, Deckard claims to be from a group that represents performers. The woman reveals her name to be Zora, and goes to take a shower and change. Deckard looks around the room and identifies her as one of the missing replicants. Zora attacks Deckard, not buying his disguise, and runs out of the club. Deckard chases her out into the streets and shoots her dead. As he goes to examine the body, we see Leon looking on, having seen the whole thing. The police chief intercepts Deckard on his way home, congratulating him on killing Zora. As he leaves, the chief mentions that there are four replicants left to find. Deckard corrects him, but the chief explains that Rachel has gone missing and that she's been added to Deckard's list. Shortly after the chief leaves, Deckard is attacked by Leon. As Leon is about to kill Deckard, Rachel appears and shoots Leon in the head. Rachel and Deckard return to his apartment. Rachel asks whether Deckard would come after her if she ran to the north. Deckard says no, saying that he owes her one. Rachel asks Deckard whether he's ever taken the void comp test himself, but Deckard doesn't answer, and Rachel finds him asleep on the couch. Rachel takes the opportunity to explore Deckard's apartment. Deckard wakes up, and Rachel tries to leave, but Deckard won't let her, and the two of them end up having some pretty explicitly non-consensual sex. Back in J.F. Sebastian's apartment, Pris and Sebastian start talking. 
and Sebastian reveals that he has a glandular issue that makes him age abnormally fast. While they talk, Roy lets himself in. Roy tells Pris that Leon and Zora are dead. Sebastian prepares some breakfast and reveals that he can tell that Roy and Pris are replicants and that he probably helped design them. Through a mix of intimidation and trying to relate to his loneliness and rapid aging, Roy and Pris are able to convince Sebastian to set up a meeting with Dr. Tyrell. Sebastian brings Roy to the Tyrell building and sneaks him into Elias' apartment. Roy presses the doctor on ways to get around the four-year lifespan, but Tyrell explains that it simply isn't possible. He tries to calm Roy, talking about the great things that Roy has accomplished, but it isn't enough, and Roy kills the doctor. Shocked and ashamed, Sebastian tries to run, but Roy follows him out of the room. Deckard sits in his police car, listening to reports of Tyrell and Sebastian's death on his radio. He calls up to Sebastian's apartment, posing as a friend, but Pris refuses to let him in. Instead, she disguises herself and waits for Deckard to make his way up on his own. When he reaches the apartment, she attacks him, but Deckard shoots her during the fight, leaving her dead. As he catches his breath, Deckard hears the elevator pulling up to Sebastian's floor, and Roy steps out. Deckard hides as Roy searches through the apartment. He taunts Deckard, hiding somewhere out of sight, then bursts through the wall, taking Deckard's gun and breaking two of his fingers. He releases Deckard, giving him a few seconds to run before he begins the chase. As Deckard stumbles away, Roy takes a second to mourn Pris's death. Deckard snaps his fingers back into place and tries to find a place to hide as Roy begins the hunt. Roy runs through the building, taunting and calling out to Deckard as Deckard climbs up through the ceiling to the floor above. Roy is forced to pause when his hands start to curl shut, a sign that his time is running out. In an attempt to stave off the tightness, he pulls a nail from an exposed beam and stabs himself through the palm. The chase continues, and Deckard manages to make his way up onto the roof. For a moment, he thinks he's safe, but Roy appears from a hatch, and Deckard is forced to try and jump to a neighboring building. He comes up short and finds himself clinging to an outstretched beam. Roy follows, making the jump easily. Roy pulls Deckard up onto the rooftop, the nail through one hand, a dove in the other, and describes some of the things he's seen, not from his implanted memories, but with his own two eyes. Resigned to his fate, he dies, releasing the dove. The cop who has been working with Deckard on and off appears, and tosses him a new gun, saying, it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Deckard returns to his apartment, calling out for Rachel. He finds her in his bed, wakes her, and asks if she loves him, if she trusts him. She says yes to both. As they leave the apartment, Deckard finds an origami unicorn on the ground. Recalling the other cop's last words to him, he joins Rachel in the elevator, and the door shuts behind them. Okay, and we're back. Wasn't I great? You were so good. You're I so am. talented, James. Just I'm really eloquent. The, that, that velvety, dulcet tone is really, I feel like, what does it. Yeah. Yeah. How close were you to your mic when you were doing that? Oh, so close. Nice. I've always been told I have a face for the radio. I like to think <laughs> I have a voice for it as well. Uh, so, yeah. All right, let's have the conversation. Yeah. Are we talk? Are we think? Do we? Is it the same? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How cool is that owl? Right? Right. Yeah. That yeah. Is. yeah. Just, the conversation. It was a robot owl. Yeah. It was a real robot. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I kept pointing out, like, pretty consistently throughout the, the film while we watched it last night, every time there was an animal I'm screen, on screen, I was like, they want us to think that's a robot animal, but that's actually just a real animal. They really <laughs> just paraded some ostriches down this set, or that's really a man walking around with a hawk flying around off his arm. <laughs> I mean, I do think the rest of them were supposed to be real. Like, I mean, we had joked about it, but nope. like, 
the no, owl's definitely a replicant, robot. but they're all robot animals. Hey, the snake was a robot and the owl was a robot. It is safe to assume that the ostriches and the hawk were also robots. Oh, Fair. I didn't take at least the snake as being like a robot. I thought it was just like genetically engineered, but not strictly speaking like. Mm. Yeah, the way she said it was, you know, wasn't real, but I guess that that can be interpreted in a lot of ways. Yeah, I guess I I've always interpreted that as like was like a test tube snake. Yeah, all right. But I don't know. Again, I'm not I don't know. I mostly the a big part of this film is is showing the weight of the upper class on the lower class and the That's extreme true. class divisions and we're talking about a bunch of poor people who are not going to have replicant animals. But they are going to have real ostriches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, but it might be that they were, like, genetically engineered ostriches, but not, strictly speaking, robot ostriches. Sure. No, I just... Man, I... Ostriches are neither easy nor, like... Speaking as someone who has known people who have owned ostriches, they're not easy animals to keep. We're going to talk about that one later, because <laughs> right. I want to know all about that. <laughs> this, is, this is the day that everybody learns a lot about Corinne. <laughs> off mic. Um, Please off mic. <laughs> Uh, but on the topic of not being able to tell whether something is real genetically engineered or a robot, let's talk about whether Deckard's a replicant. Yeah. I'm just going to point this out. Uh, watching it last night, all the replicants have eye shines. Yep. And I did not see an instance of Deckard having an eye shine. Just pointing that out. I always feel like, because that's the question, right? It's that the every, thing. And right, it's the very, unicorn. Yeah, it's very purposely left ambiguous. While at the same time, the the Deckard is a replicant camp, have a lot of very clear reasons for thinking that he is that are demonstrated in the movie. And my feelings on it, honestly, is that it doesn't matter. <laughs> it That's just, really what I come down it to. It just doesn't matter to me, at least. I feel like it's, I mean, it's like the whisper at the end of Lost in I was going to say. Right? Yeah. It's the yeah. thing that's really interesting to think about and talk about, but ultimately the answer does not matter at all. Yeah. Yeah. And that it, I feel like it's fun and interesting to talk about, like, once or twice. I think my thing is, I guess what to me makes it more important to the uh, to what Blade Runner is, is that so much of what that story means to the characters, of what the events of that film mean to the characters, changes if Deckard is a replicant or not. So who thinks he's what? No, based on eye shines alone. <laughs> Honestly, I never had like a really a really firm thing. Like I feel like I've I, I've never been quite convinced by the argument that he is. But I certainly think it's left open, right? Like, uh, Rachel brings it up and it's just like, oh, you know, have you ever, like, done that test on yourself? Yeah, and, and he just doesn't answer her. He, yeah, he, like, pretends to be asleep. Yep. Or is actually asleep. Or maybe just pretends to be asleep. You know, and so things like that where, like, it's it's brought up and it feels like it's it's there. And a big part of the movie is say rachel being a replicant and not knowing that she is a replicant right and which... the idea that there can be a replicant that doesn't have this four-year lifespan yeah. and can think they're a human because they have implanted memories like all of it is right they feed it to you yeah so and i would argue there's a case for it would be not beyond the pale from a narrative standpoint to have a replicant blade runner right. who does not realize that he is a replicant Though we also see a lot of uh, Deckard's physical limitations uh, throughout the film, which maybe just makes him an earlier model or... Or, I mean, even my idea is that he's a cutting edge replicant, but the idea is that he was created to be human, right? And so having the kinds of physical advantages that replicants have would be a dead giveaway that he is, in fact, a replicant to himself and to others. 
but also kind of goes against the idea that a replicant would make for an effective Blade Runner because they would have some sort of superhuman capacities. Right. So, but I feel like that's my big thing is I, I've never been quite convinced by evidence that he clearly is a replicant. Um, but I also think that the movie certainly brings that question out and makes like interesting points about it. But I feel like the big thing for me is I always come down to I, I do not think there is strong enough evidence to say that he is. I don't think that there's anything strictly to speaking to say that he isn't. But I am. But I mean, the default has to be that he isn't. I, I feel like that's the big thing is I, I genuinely think that there is not enough evidence to say a hard yes. So until then, I will operate under the assumption of humanity with, you know, the asterisk. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm in the same camp as you, James. Like, none of the arguments were quite enough to, like, push me, like, firmly over the line. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say, like, hard no, he's not a replicant. Yeah. But it's also one of those things where I'm like, I'm not losing sleep at night over, like, oh, my God, is Deckard a replicant or not? Yeah. Whereas, like, I mean, there were some movies that do have, like, some kind of open-ended question at the end where I do, like, suddenly, sometimes randomly start thinking about it again going, oh, wait, like... Maybe it wasn't this way, and it was like Inception, for instance. Like sometimes yeah. I randomly think about the end of Inception, and with with Blade Runner, I don't usually sit there thinking, "Whoa, was he like a replicant the entire like time?" Or and like, what does that mean? It's just kind of like it's one of those things you wonder about at the time that you're watching it, and then you let it go pretty quickly afterwards. Because I think a big thing is that for for Blade Runner, it's interesting and it changes the story that we're told in certain ways, if he is or isn't. But ultimately, like, we have a conclusion and we have a story that has a point A and a point B, and neither of those is altered or changed or heavily, you know... Well, yeah, it's it's neither altered nor changed by Deckard being a, a replicant, right? Whereas the kinds of movies that I feel like keep you thinking are, are the movies where the entire context of of it or the conclusion that we reach or any of those things are altered by the central question, right? Like inception becomes a completely different film based on that ending and that question. Yeah. Whereas blade runner, if you have a hard yes or a hard no, all it does is change aspects of the characterization and, and like subtext of the story. Yeah. And I would say even on top of that, I think that that's doubly the case because I think you have to operate under the assumption that Decker doesn't know either. Yeah. Like this is, he's not like, you know, Roy or Rachel or someone like uh, Rachel by the end, but he's not like Roy who knows what's up. Mm -hmm. He goes to the entire movie operating under the assumption that he is human as, as far as I can tell at least. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like we would discover that he knew this all along and that colors his actions in some other way. It's, he operates as a human doing human things with certain feelings towards replicants and humans and the cops and Tyrell and all of these things. Right. So, and it's, it's not like it's ever called so directly into question. Like, uh, like that sequence and has everybody's here. Oh, we did ex machina for the podcast. Right? We did. Yeah. So that was our first, heard? that was our first movie we ever did. Wasn't our very first movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but it's, it's not like that sequence in ex machina, right? Where like, and I'm already forgetting character names, but where the, uh, the ginger guy. Oh, wait, Corinne, you haven't seen this yet. <gasps> no. Oh God. How have you not shown this to you? I'm not talking about it. This is one of my favorite fucking movies. We're, we're watching this very soon. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to cover my ears. 
I, I wouldn't even want to risk it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a it's a really cool movie. And you guys know what I'm referencing anyway. Yeah. Um, so. And our listeners do not, but we yeah. wouldn't want to spoil it for no, them no, anyway. Because no. they might not do, have seen it. Because they've definitely watched oh, the yeah, first they're definitely or been listening listened since the first, first episode. Watch episode. Yeah. They watched our first episode <laughs> and there's something wrong. <laughs> they listened to the first watch episode. Um anyway. Sorry. Yes. But, I wasn't around. <laughs> But yeah, but I can't continue my train of thought. Yeah, so, I, I get you though. It, where that that is a big effect on uh, how you read that movie. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've we've had the Deckard conversation, yeah. and there we go. Everything's Cause, done. Because like when you try to think about like, I mean, things we've typically talked about before. I mean, the characters in Blade Runner aren't really all that deep, honestly. Like, not, you know, no, nobody really has any depth. It's everybody is really archetypes, just trying to point something out, right? The Tyrell just represents the wealthy class and and everybody else represents the lower class and Rachel is kind of a completely one dimensional character. Yeah. Who pretty definitively gets raped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not great. Mm-mm. Yeah, again with the noir tropes going into like it's like that the forceful kiss that leads into a forceful encounter, you know, like it's not a great thing from noir that everyone who wants to do something noirish tends Still to pull in, it. and yeah, that's one of the things, right? It's just like why, just fucking why, why? Yep. And it's doubly weird because I don't know. At least to me, that doesn't necessarily feel super in line with Deckard as a character. Yeah, it doesn't. I guess strictly feel super out of line. I guess um, it's not like there's a bunch of other scenes that show him acting better than that but i don't think there's anything else that really suggests that he would be that way though it's the kind of thing where it's like well this seems arbitrary and it definitely feels out of place yeah um yeah i don't know i i guess maybe there is enough of like a composite that it's like well he seemed like pretty base decent so this is out of place i don't know is there anything else we want to say? That's a weird scene. It's gross. I don't like it. She's basically crying and saying no the whole time, and it happens anyway. Yep. It's really... I, I wish there was more to say about it than that, but it's... It's unfortunately super common. Unfortunately super common, and the... The, like, soft, like, sexy saxophone music in the background yeah. just makes it into <laughs> this awful parody. Yeah. And it's just yeah. really gross. Yeah. That's the problem with so many, like, of these classics, right? It's, like, everyone loves them and considers them to be, like, great works of art. And they're so... I feel... Recently, I've been feeling, like, almost more often than not, there is, like, something horrendously wrong like this scene that's, like, in these things. And it's just... Why it's so prevalent is... Ugh. Going into my not unhappy place right now. (laughs) I'm gonna have but, a foe later. It's yeah, it's okay. all right. <laughs> but it's just yeah, it's it's incredibly. I mean, I was gonna say annoying, but beyond annoying, like it's fucked up. Um, but and again, one of those things where as a kid, I was just like, what? When I first saw this, I just like it happened. Then I was like, I don't have like I'm too young to process this, so I'm not gonna think about it really. But it was definitely like it sat weird with me even when I was a kid and watched it. Yeah, I feel like the character who has the most most uh, depth in the whole thing is Roy. Oh yeah. For sure. He's my favorite character in this, but yeah, no, with Roy, it's like, he has that scene. And again, it's probably my favorite scene. Like on, we're on, on, when they're on the roofs at the end. Yeah. Yeah. 
and he has like that speech. Yeah. Improv. Oh, yeah. yeah, the Tears in the Rain speech. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got a bird for some reason. As one does, you know, yeah. in the Blade Runner universe. Wait, did you say improv? Yeah. That scene was improv? Yeah. The the actor just made shit up. That entire speech. For the the guys... Tears and Rain speech? Yeah. I know. I thought it was lifted from uh, the book, actually. Oh, was it? Well, the... I don't know. It I... wasn't in the script. That's that's the point, at least. That That whole thing there was not scripted. I know this because I very frequently look up improv parts of movies because this is something that's very interesting to me yeah i actually do the same although i've never i just never stumbled across this wow that's impressive uh, like... i i mean i will spend some time double checking that because now i because I... usually when i think of like improv the bits of scripts like i just remember and this is a completely we, we might want to cut this out but it's it's just a funny thing completely unrelated there was like a lou taylor pucci movie where it was Thumbsucker, i think and they're like, oh, yeah, we wanted the actors to, like, improv this one scene. And, like, the line he comes up with that they were all, like, really impressed with was, like, that's really fucked up was, like, his improv line. But Ooh. they were talking about it like, oh, my God, it's so deep. Very deep. And I feel like the big one, I, I, the obvious standout, if we're if we're to talk about improv lines, right, is just, I love you, I know. Yeah. Oh, another Harrison Ford yeah. situation. Yeah, fun fact. Turns out, uh, actually, Harrison Ford is the one who improv the uh, Tears in the Rain speech. <laughs> And is just a skilled ventriloquist. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, the final form altered from the scripted lines and improvised by Howard on the eve of filming. So I think, I think there was, I don't know what the original was. I will read more <laughs> and let you know. I hope it was really cheesy, the original lines. I think I have the original lines here. Let's do a dramatic reading, Justin. I'm bad at dramatic reading. Do it anyway. Uh... <laughs> I'm just, I do the dramatic reading. I'm very good at them. Okay, go ahead. I don't I don't know what part you're looking at, though. I'm, are you looking at the Wikipedia article? About the speech specifically? Yeah. yeah, if you scroll down to the one, the quoted out, the quoted out one that's, I have known adventures, that's the original scripted speech. Wow. Wow. Dramatic. Okay. This is going to be exciting. Yeah. Here's, here's the original. <clears throat> I have known adventures, seen places you people will never see. I've been off-world and back. Frontiers! I've stood on the back deck of a blinker bound for the plutician camps with sweat in my eyes, watching the stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. I felt wind in my hair, riding test boats off the black galaxies and seen an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear. I've seen it. Felt it. The end. That's the whole thing. That's, that's the whole thing. I mean, that's longer than the speech, the actual tears and rain speech. Yeah. yeah. But he, the, there's so much power to the thing that, that Rucker Hauer eventually rewrote. Um, so he, Scott and, and the screenwriter, David Peoples, um, insist. And I mean, Howard, it, they insist that he wrote the speech and Howard in his own autobiography says that he, um, he took the original speech that, that Corinna just said, and he sort of grabbed a lot of the words and, and ideas and then wrote something else the night before they filmed the scene. I mean, um, that seems more accurate because yeah. there are several things from what you just pulled that make it into the final thing. Right, the shoulder of Orion, yeah. the sea deck thing. Yeah. Um, so not improvised, but, uh, but his modified own, yeah. by the actor and delivered without the knowledge of anybody else at the yeah. moment of filming. Yep, and it, I mean, what Howard made is got a million times better 
And yeah. the most important line of the whole thing, as people would consider it, right, is that, you know, all of these things lost, like Tears and Rain, is completely and wholly his own idea. Yeah. What a poet. For real. Yeah. Because that's, like, when I think of Blade Runner, like, that is the scene I think of. Absolutely. That's okay. what everybody thinks of, I would imagine. Honestly, uh, I think of the ramen scene at the beginning. I mean, I think of Rucker Hauer slamming his head through the wall, even though the door's right there. <laughs> that's, that's what we were talking about last night. It's like head just comes through the wall, and I've just I've turned to him like the 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 door is right there. Well, Why my are favorite you doing my favorite this? thing about that scene is not only is that something the audience can do, like you can just see that the door is there, and you can have this reaction. But like literally, when he decide when he finally pulls his head out from the wall, he just jumps to the right, opens the door, and comes in the room. So yeah. it's like. <laughs> Just for funsies. Pretty much. And he's like stuck there for a minute. It's yeah, like, you see him like, tr- was... it looks like he tries to pull himself out and then just commits to doing that part of the scene from the wall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's so funny. It's like a dog that like doesn't quite, you know, like gets himself into trouble and then yep. just decides to go it's with like it. like the dog that sticks his head through the railing, right? Yeah. On yeah. the steps. And it's like, yeah, I, can, I got my head in here. Isn't this great? Oh, I can't. can't I can't out. get it back out. <laughs> I mean, I like the idea that just all replicants have a bit of a flair for the theatrical. It certainly seemed like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the ones that we get. Yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe maybe less so. Uh, what's his name? The one from the beginning. The one Leon. who was like is there for like half a second. Leon. Leon. Yeah. I don't know. Leon goes and he's just like spouting like one liners as he's beating the shit out of Deckard. And yes, that's true. Like, throws them around a little bit and decides, I don't, for whatever reason, I guess their go-to way of killing a human is gouging their eyes out with their thumbs. Yeah, which is, God, just horrific. Yeah. It's just one of those deaths where, like, like so much of, of pain and, and stuff in movies is, right, this empath- empathic response in the viewer. And so there are a few things I can imagine being more painful than being killed that way. Game of Thrones. Or at least a few things that that like skeeve me out more than the idea of being killed that way. Uh, yep. Yeah. I don't know. There was a medieval torture device that was like this, like hat that would wrap around your face with like these little like chimneys that would go to your ears and you would pour like hot, like boiling oil into those. And that's always to me. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like probably one of the most horrific and painful ways to die, but I've, one, never had to witness it happen to someone (laughs) and feel the feeling of it happening to me in that moment. Why do you know about this device, Corinne? Well, I'm going to say it's because I toured the Tower of London when I went on a trip to England. So, Replicants, why four years? Like, that's so, like, I I have, I've had iPhones that lived longer than that, so that... So that their whether they should exist or not could be decided from president to president. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think a lot of it has to do with the the idea that they can develop emotions, right? Yeah, that's that's the why given reason. Build them so they can develop emotions. Well, because the, I mean, they they didn't fit right. They created these essentially what are AIs that exist inside of these robot bodies, and the replicants themselves are too useful to not have in this society for any number of reasons but they also can't nail down creating these intelligences that can't just sort of develop their own emotions right for whatever scientific shortcomings they have it's just impossible to develop replicants that don't eventually develop some kind of emotional response 
and probably because they want them to replicate human emotions, literally. And eventually that, that system just sort of breaks down into development of development of actual emotion. And so they put this forced lifespan into them so that it seems to happen at random. Like it can happen faster for some models than for others, which is why these guys went, went more or less rampant, um, like a year or two before they were actually supposed to die. Well, I got the impression that that was more of like a, that was, that was the point when they realized what was going on and wanted to try and change that. Right. Like that's yeah. why they come back to earth. And I mean, I guess a big part of it is that replicants are never, are intentionally never made aware of the fact that they only have a four year lifespan. Right. And it seems that these four found out. Yeah. Somehow. And on top of that, we're at least led to believe that at least Leon, hard to say for the others, but Leon seems to have implanted memories, right? Like he has that stack of photos that Rachel had that he like cared enough about to go back to the apartment to try and get when he kind of runs into Deckard. Right. Yeah. I mean, they make a big deal about her having implanted memories and not knowing that she's a replicant. I mean, it seems like she's in a pretty similar state to what Leon would have been in potentially just a little while ago. It's like they know that they're replicants, but they don't know of the limitations of what it means to be a replicant. Maybe Roy does though. Well, you mean like just in general, in general, like replicants are not supposed to right, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the big things to, to the story. Right. And interestingly enough, I, I feel like it's a little bit unfortunate kind of coming back to the is Deckard a replicant thing. I feel like that ends up sort of superseding what strikes me as kind of that the bigger question for, for everything. And it just kind of comes down to a question of, you know, to what degree are the replicants people? Yeah. And I think some of it is because there's a certain amount of stuff in the movie where it kind of treats them pretty strongly on, on either way. Like Rachel feels a lot like a person Roy and I mean, Leon, I guess maybe is the best example just because Leon feels like that little bit kind of off in a lot of his scenes. You know, a lot of his lines are kind of don't like flow logically from one to the next when he's like beating up uh, Deckard. It's a lot of like just individual, just one-off things. It's like, this is what it is to live in fear. I don't remember what like the next line is, but it does not follow that one in any like meaningful way. So, you know, you've got some stuff like that, but it's at least to me, that strikes me as kind of the big thing, right? It seems like, I don't know, maybe it's part of what makes characters like Roy feel that much deeper than a lot of the other ones, right? Is you've got, they're they are human enough to want to prolong their lives right like they're as smart as people they're faster they're stronger they have emotions they have memories at least it seems leon does i mean maybe it's something where like they are aware of their four-year lifespan but because of the way replicants are designed to think and feel it's not something that like they don't have a, a real sense of mortality right it's just that they exist. They know that they're meant to exist for four years and then they're going to stop existing. And that's just the role of a replicant. But it's when replicants develop real human emotion and not just programming that simulates emotion that they that we see these replicants with like a thirst to live. You know? Yeah. It's interesting because like 
I think we can also kind of assume the replicants are probably a little bit more perceptive. Like they're just, you know, they're enhanced basically. Sure. Um, and the idea of like, okay, they had these, this, these four years to have all these experiences and in a way it's like, like they get to it. They, even though they're basically, you know, slaves, um, their ability to enjoy life or like these little like things like that, you know, you kind of get a hint of from, of from uh, Roy's speech at the end. Uh, it's like they get a taste of it and then because they enjoy life more than like a human, the average human might like, it's like a shame that they don't get to like live more and experience more of it when they could actually like get more out of the experience of living than like say an average human. Yeah. Well, I'd say even, even if you set aside the fact that they might be able to perceive it more, I think one of the big takeaways also from Roy's speech is he has done these things. And even if he only has, you know, real memories for the last four years, it doesn't make his memories any less real than Deckard's for the last four years, anything that any of us might remember from the last four years. You know, he did this, this stuff. And even if you are someone who thinks of him as a robot or which isn't necessarily true, right? It, they are genetically engineered like some of the other animals to an extent. And it's, <laughs> you know, it, we have like the scientist earlier who talks about like, oh yeah, like I made your eyes. You know, it's, it doesn't seem to be strictly circuits. They have blood, yeah. they bleed, they have tissue. But yeah, that those four years of experience aren't any less meaningful than anyone else's and that it's still tragic that Roy dies at the end. You know, that all those memories are gone like tears in the rain right you know that you've spent kind of the rest of the movie up until then with this like kind of strict divide between well there are people and there are replicants and it means a lot to be one or the other but i think that that's roy's point in the end right is that no not really like it's they're not so different like his death is still tragic it and i feel like as each replicant dies throughout the film right like you feel you feel more and more like that was a person as you got to know them. Yeah. I keep thinking back to, uh, I can't remember which part of Sandman it's from, but there's the quote of, you get what everyone else gets. You get a lifetime. Yeah. A lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Also quoted by my chemical romance in their second album. Um, I was talking about this actually last night with my friend. What track? Um, I it's one of the later tracks. I can't remember which one. I gotta find this. I'm excited. It's like right at the beginning. It's like a very screamo intro. Yeah, sure. Like, um, yeah, I mean that line is very quotable in many different contexts. But I feel yeah. like here, I, I mean, no, and no one like really expresses like that, you know, idea to Roy or anybody. But like they get, it's not like they started out at year one, like infancy. It's like they've been full grown adults like for this entire time, and they got to experience a lot, not nearly as much as they like would like to, and probably should have, you know been able to but they i always got the sense at least from that last speech of roy's that like th that if not all of them then he at least had a fairly full life at least for like if you're considering what most people do in four years yeah, yeah. it reminds me a bit um that did anyone else watch scrubs yes. like on and off Lots. Yeah, uh, okay so do you remember there's there's the one episode where one of the kind of longer term patients is is there and like they're deciding like whether or not to like continue treatment and she's just like oh you know like I've, I've had a good life and jd takes that as ergo she is ready to die and then later on she's like why would you think that no 
I've had a really good life. I want more of it. Yeah. Why would I want to stop? No, I'm not done. I want to continue. And like it seems like it it reminds me of like it's similar sentiments. Obviously, one is played for laughs and the other, you know, he's got a nail through one hand and a dove in the other. You can determine whether or not that's played for laughs. Um, but, you know, it's like, yeah, we get it. Jesus. But still. Jesus yeah. just keeps coming back up. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I always, I always think that that's, like, the really interesting conversation that tends to get sort of sidelined by the, oh, is Deckard a replicant? And then, like, the question comes up, like, oh, well, does it matter? And the does it matter ends up in the context of, like, to the story. But it doesn't really touch on the, I don't know, are replicants less than people in any meaningful way? Are they that different behind the way society sees them? Right. Then we bring in all the Ray Kurzweil's texts. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I think. That's what I think is even the more important central question of Blade Runner is like, right, this analysis of humanity and what does it mean to be human and can can the replicants be imbued with humanity? Are they really that separate? Like I, I would argue that, that ruminating on that and, and coming to a conclusion of, of how the world that is Blade Runner works in that respect is, is more important. Yeah. I, I think so too. Like, I think that's the central question of the movie. Yeah. I think it's kind of, it's again, it's like lost in translation, right? Where we talked about like, yeah, it seems like it's kind of unfortunate that the big conversation around this movie is so often, Oh, well, what did they say? And even if everyone comes to, oh, it doesn't matter. But then you feel like you've had the conversation about Lost in Translation. When really you're, you're just getting started. Yeah. Or even, you know, you've, you've had a conversation, but right. not really the one that it feels like the movie actually wants you to have. We, however, are great at that and had exactly the conversation we were supposed to have. And everything's figured out and we're the smartest ever. Mm-hmm. We're so smart. Yeah. He specifically came back to that topic episode and said... I think we may have misunderstood Lost in Translation. Or at least I remember James did, and I, I think I agreed pretty quickly on that one. Listen, we're we're supposed to be retconning our our own intelligence. You're ruining oh. it. Oh, are we? I I'm sorry. That's that's the ghost of podcast pass job. No, <laughs> I was, wait, what? I, was I am the ghost of podcast present. Right. <laughs> I determine how how accurately we look at the past. Probably. What? I don't know. I'm getting yeah. so confused. <laughs> I'm very confused. This joke, has gone, this joke has gone too far. Yeah. Ichabod Scrooge signing off. <laughs> and to be totally fair, I don't think it was that I said I, I felt that I misunderstood Lost in Translation. It was that uh, I found myself thinking really differently about it as yeah. like a month out from, from having watched it. Yeah. For, for total context, but... But yeah, no, like I, I think that that's, that's the case though, right? And that's kind of the point for a lot of these where it's really nice. You can have that initial conversation and then move out beyond it. Yeah. Yep. There is another character I would like to talk about. Um, J.S. Sebastian. Yeah. I don't know what I want to talk about with him. but 25-year-old <laughs> whippersnapper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ooh. do you think he... I mean, Roy kills him, right? Like, it's, yes. it's implied, but it's not like necessarily... I think it's stated when... Um, uh, when Decker's listening to his police radio uh, in the car afterwards, and they talk about like the body that was found with Tyrell, Tyrell yeah. okay. has been identified as like the 25 year old oh, like okay. genetic engineer J.F. Sebastian. You think that after I've seen this movie so many times, I would have that 100 percent confirmed? It's, yeah, it's one of those little facts that's so easy to escape. 
yeah and your attention especially because at that point like what you were saying you've kind of figured out that it's implied that roy kills him serious like yeah he's probably dead and so yeah yeah but he's like yeah he's an interesting because loneliness is definitely something that a theme that's explored in blade runner a lot right Mm -hmm. like everyone like deckard is alone the way that all like the pi characters and every noir themed anything you know is alone uh rachel is completely alone because she's like you know kind of a one of a kind replicant potentially yeah um and who's been stripped of all of her like family and friend memories that she thought she had yeah and you have um you know all the all the like roy the four of those replicants are all they have each other but then they you know they they're all incredibly alone and then you have you know sebastian who's literally lives alone with all his toys that he made yeah and I don't know. That character always made me very sad just because and I, I think it's just it's all the little gadgety toy guys, friends that he made because he's like, these are my friends. Yeah. I've created them. And it's also kind of a weird, like the toys are creepy also is the other thing. Yeah. Um, kind of remind me of like the first Toy Story movie with like, you know, the, the evil like Sid's toys. Oh, yeah. Like it's just like that weird, like something's a little bit off. Something's a little bit weird. Yeah. Um. But he was always a likable character for me. Um, but I almost, I don't know, I feel like they could have pushed him a little bit more for something. Because he's like kind of there and then he, you know, he has his interactions with Chris and stuff. And then he, they kind of like lose that storyline and then he dies. Yeah, he exists pretty largely to be manipulated by Roy and Pris. Yeah. And and I mean I guess to to bring up that that connection between him and the replicants and the fact that they're treated similarly in some ways and differently in others and that his kind of inherent humanity seems to have gained him something in that world but his otherness still sets him apart. But yeah, I do think he's an interesting character. I it's been a long time since I've read Androids. Uh, I read that in high school. Yeah, it's been a long time for me. As I well. never actually read it, so. So, I I wish I could remember if he is expanded upon in like a, a meaningful way. I think it's interesting that Deckard doesn't actually stop them from you know confronting Tyrell. Because the general expectation from a story like this is that they would they would be working toward getting to Tyrell and Deckard would be working toward stopping them and they would have a confrontation before they actually achieve their goal, but. In this case, not only do they get to Tyrell and have a conversation, but they kill him. Like, yeah, it just feels unique to me in a story like this. Yeah, I think it's particularly interesting that Deckard's not hired by Tyrell. Deckard's just brought back in because yeah. you've got these, you know, four Nexus Sixes who are who are out on the loose, and he's, I guess, really good. Yeah, he's yeah. the only Blade Runner good enough for the job. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it seems like the police are not super concerned with like that they just want to hunt down the replicants because it seems like they never quite get onto the trail that they're actually going after Tyrell. Yeah, I'd agree. I don't yeah, I don't think that he does. Can we talk about Edward James Olmos in this in this movie? Like young Edward James Olmos? Sure. Yeah, go for it. 
What do you have to say about young Edward I don't James know, Olmos? Except for the fact that he's there and he's a young Edward James <laughs> Olmos. Because like, I just so hardcore associate him with Battlestar. Yeah. As does everyone at this point, I feel yeah. like. And so every time I see... He's, and he's also one of those people who like I forget he's in the movie and then I see the movie and I'm like, it's him! Yeah. Um, actually, I think he did a lot with... I mean, the role is small, but he did a lot with it, I thought. Mm-hmm. I mean... And I say that even though I just said also I forget that he's in the movie every time I watch it. <laughs> Whatever. You know, contradictor. I'm a complicated person. Well, I mean, it's a good performance, but you mystique. don't necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I'd agree. Though. Like, it's a good performance. You remember it as a good performance, but not necessarily the actor who gives it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree. Yeah. But yeah. Sounds like we can probably wrap up. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think we'll have a lot more to say also specifically in, you know in the context of sci-fi noir as a whole during our topic episode and also related specifically to Altered Carbon. And then we'll see with Gemini Rue. I mean, we have no idea about yeah. Gemini Rue yet. We have yeah. no expectations. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually completely agree. I feel like most of everything, like at least even that I've already said this episode, I was like, ah, should I save that for the topic? I feel like I want to bring in so many other things. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I, I think that you're right that this is going to be a big part of our topic episode, which I'm really excited for. Um, yeah, so with that, uh, as we suggested mere seconds ago, next up is going to be Gemini Rue, which uh, turns out available like all over the place, which is really cool. Yep. Uh, so excited for that. Following that, it's going to be the topic for sci-fi noir as a whole. And then we're going to be going back into Corinne. Girls with gifts gathered by the government. Exactly. Uh, until then, though, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RWP Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. Check out our Tumblr at rwppodcast.tumblr.com and look for our game streams on twitch.tv slash RWP Podcast. Honestly, I just heard weirdly ska, and I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, it's, that's the name of my new band. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Not a ska band. Yeah. <laughs> We're really kind of like a post-hardcore, post mm. pre-classical kind of band. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Weirdly ska. Weirdly ska. Love it.